0: Uh what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Chandalaney? Got you there with Chandalini. Uh-huh. What got you there with Chandelaney? Got you there with Chandalane. What got you there with Chandelane? Got you, got you Jack Carr is an author and former Navy SEAL who led special operations teams as a team leader, platoon commander, troop commander, task unit commander, operations officer, and executive officer. Jack has taken his 20 years in naval special warfare and is using those real-life experiences to write thriller novels. On this episode, Jack discusses how his experience in the SEALs has shaped who he is today, developing his skill as a writer, and constantly striving to become better. His newest book, True Believer, is out now, so check it out. Making Change Transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto friendly, all natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Do you guys miss your favorite childhood cereals but had to give them up because of all the sugar? Meat? Catalina Crunch, the world's first keto friendly, zero sugar cereal in delicious dark chocolate, cinnamon toast, maple waffle, and honey gram. When the founder of Catalina Crunch was diagnosed at age 17 with type 1 diabetes, he set out to satisfy his chocolate craving and created his own. This low carb, zero sugar cereal will power you through the day with 10 grams of plant based protein, 6 grams of fiber to fill you up and is also gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and 100% plant-based. Don't forget about that turmeric as well to help fight inflammation and boost immunity. If you want to enjoy and receive 10% off your entire order, head to CatalinaCrunch.com. That's Catalina. C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A crunch.com and use code WGYT10 for 10% off. I just finished snacking on some of the dark chocolate and it was delicious. You guys need to head out and pick some up today. Jack Carr, I know you're in the middle of the madness with a new book release. The book has been out for a week now. What have the past couple days and weeks been like for you?
1: They have been exceptionally busy. Uh <laughs> It's, uh, it's, I think this is uh, signing number, oh geez, eight, day seven or something like that. Uh, but it's all great. I mean, I feel so fortunate that people are coming out and in between all these different uh, signings and talks, all these interviews and it's just been, been incredible. And, uh, I love talking about books and love talking about writing and, um, it's just, a it's been, it's been great.
0: Yeah, no, it's exciting to finally make this one happen, get you on. I know you had a little chaos going into today, but you were able to handle it. So thank you for that. I do want to know though, when it's not book tour, it's not chaos. What does a typical day look like for you? How do you usually start it?
1: It is still chaos. Uh, We have three kids, a dog, wife. um, So it is mass chaos at our house. The kids are uh, 14, 11, and 8. So for those of you that have kids in that. uh, in those age ranges, you know how insane it is. Um, but uh, and then things jump out in the schedule all the time. That kind of I wish I could answer this question <laughs> differently and say that I was very disciplined in my approach. I I got up and I journaled and then I had tea and then I hung upside down for ten minutes and you know that sort of thing. But uh, that is not the case. It is a stumble for the the coffee pot and uh, and slug down some coffee and uh, and get jump into the day. Um, but uh, before things got really crazy, then I was working out with uh, someone you know, Hobie Darling in Park City, former CEO of Skull Candy, who's just an amazing guy and about optimizing human performance um, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And they, man, he put some crazy workouts together. So that's how I was starting my day for the first uh, year and a half or so that I was uh, in Park City. Um, but, uh, but now it's been just mass chaos. So after the book tour, hope to take a breath and get back to a more disciplined approach where I get up, get to that gym, knock out the hour, hour and a half workout with the uh, crew of about five of us that are uh, kind of a core workout group there in Park City with trail runs and kind of CrossFit centric type stuff. And, uh, and then get back get the kids, help get the kids to school and then just, uh, jump into writing because book three, is almost done, and book four I'll be starting here in a couple of weeks.
0: See, I love asking this question because I never know if someone's gonna be completely routine-oriented or not, just embracing <laughs> embracing the chaos, so it's unbelievable. Is there anything you do later in the day to get that writing done?
1: It all depends, because uh, just as we just saw as we were starting this call, I got a, a uh, starting this podcast, I got a call from my publicist, and uh, little interviews pop up here and there, and right now, I'm at that stage where I need to adapt and take advantage of emerging opportunities just like I would on the battlefield. Um, and this, this is the time there's momentum and it's. Uh, I don't wanna let any of that momentum go to waste. And I wanna make sure that I'm using my time most effectively and efficiently, but uh, not be so disciplined in my approach that I let opportunities pass by. Uh, I'm not at that stage yet. This is kind of like what I picture a startup being like, and I didn't anticipate that at the start at all. I thought you just wrote, and then you sent it to New York and that was it. Um, I thought maybe an interview or two if you're lucky. Um, I, not, I had no idea that it's uh, everything that would you'd have to do if you're starting a small business or starting starting a coffee shop or something like that. All the uh, all the branding and co-branding and marketing and advertising and social media and everything else that goes along with the business side of writing. Because I never thought about any of that. And then in the military, I'd never touched social media. Uh, but now, of course, you know, I have to uh, embrace it. And, uh, and it's a great way, actually, to, uh, although the learning curve was steep, I still, it's a great way to thank people because I feel so fortunate that the book is out there, that people are really, it's resonating with people, and they're reaching out to me, and I can reach right back out and say thank you.
0: It's funny you mention that because I was actually on your website a lot preparing for this interview, and you've got an unbelievable website. Oh, thank you. Your style, the the videos that you have on there. So I even had notes if we had some extra time I wanted to talk about that, but it's cool to hear about your mentality going into that. It's almost like a startup environment. You did mention though about your workout. I I want to hit more on this for a second. Living in Park City, Utah, you mentioned the trail runs, CrossFit integration. What other things are
1: you doing out there? I know you're an outdoorsman. Yeah. So, you know, we moved from San Diego to Park City uh, a year after I got out of the military. And I thought it was important to make a, a clean break with that part of our lives um, and make a, a physical and psychological break with the military. And my wife and I wanted to raise our kids in a ski town. So, so off we went to Park City, Utah. The first day we got there, we went to the grocery store, got out of the car, looked around, and we're like, "Oh my goodness, look at all these people! They're in such great shape." Um, it was in, it was astounding. We thought we were in pretty good shape from San Diego, you know, former Navy SEAL, all that stuff. And wow, looking around, I mean, you see these people that I mean, people are drawn to certain areas for the lifestyle. And in Park City, that lifestyle uh, is really about getting outdoors and being in shape, being able to do all these things. Um, so the trail running and the mountain biking and the skiing, and the backcountry stuff. Uh, so it, it, but when you just walk through town or walk through a grocery store, it is evident that uh, fitness is uh, at the top of people's priority list. So, so we had to, uh, to jump into that, back into that pretty quick. And luckily, uh, knowing Hobie Darling for years, uh, and knowing how he works out, also, I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a little while to work up to get ready. To work out with you. And he's like, Nope, just come on down. So I said, okay. And, uh, showed up and then yeah, he got me back into park city shape pretty quick.
0: <laughs> no, that is awesome. I want to hit a bit on your origin story though. What did you think you were going to be as a kid?
1: Yeah. The two things I wanted to do was uh, serve my country in uniform and, uh, then write fiction in the genre. And a lot of that I think has to do with my grandfather who was killed in world war II. Uh, he was a Corsair pilot, which is the, the plane with the gull wings that would, fold up. And there's a TV show back then when I was a kid called Black Sheep Squadron with uh, Robert Conrad for anyone old enough to uh, remember that. Um, but I grew up with him as the idea of my, uh, like the ideal hero, even though I never met him. And I grew up with his medals, the silk maps they used to give aviators back then, black and white pictures of him and his squadron, his wings, that sort of thing. And uh, I just knew that one day I would join the military. It was, just, it was a calling much like writing is, and I, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I knew I was joining the military, and then at age seven, I found out what SEALs were, and I found out what SEALs were while uh, my dad was watching football, and I had no interest in watching football. I I'd, I'd like to go out and throw the ball around and that sort of thing, but I didn't like to just sit there and watch it on TV, um, but I would sit there with him, one, be, to be close to my dad, and two, because of the four channels we got back then, ABC, CBS, NBC, there was one outlier. And this outlier channel on Sundays always seemed to have some sort of an old war movie on. And so when there was a commercial, my dad would look at his watch and say, go. And I, uh, being the remote control back then, I would run up, I'd turn the dial to that uh, that outlier station that was playing some sort of a war movie, and I'd get to watch it for two minutes. And then he'd say, switch it back. And I'd switch it back and then go sit down next to him and tell the next commercial. So I was interested in the war movie, not the not the sports. And, uh, one of these movies was called the frogman and it showed these guys, old black and white movie and show these guys swimming up to these beaches and blowing up obstacles. And I thought, Hey, man, these, that looks pretty cool. Who are these guys? And my dad said, well, they're Frogmen. And, uh, and I said, well, what's that? And he said, ask your mother. He was busy watching football. So, uh, so I did, and I was, uh, my mom was a librarian and we went down to the local library, did some research and she liked, she liked to take advantage of any opportunity to take us down to teach us about the Dewey decimal system. So off we went and there we were, and there was hardly anything written about SEALs back then, but my takeaways were that, uh, Hey, this training is some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. And these guys are, uh, one of the most elite fighting forces in the world. So, uh, they had me at age seven and, uh, just to continue with that I think I exhausted everything you could read about SEALs back in the early 80s in just a few hours. Um, And you couldn't just jump online, obviously, and Google Navy SEAL or Google Special Forces or anything like that. Um, So a lot of the information I got came from the pages of fictional thrillers because I grew up with this love of reading. And uh, guys like Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, uh, A.J. Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, uh, David Morrell, these guys that were just masters of the craft in the 80s had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have one day. Guys typically that had Vietnam experience, usually in special operations or intelligence circles. So I just had, had great memories of reading those books back then. And, uh, and I obviously kept reading for my entire life. But um, I knew that one day after the military, I would write. So both military and writing were both callings.
0: It's so funny how, how the culmination of all those years finally came to to where you are today. I want to know how, after age seven, do you end up actually going into the SEALs? I mean, yeah. a- as you got closer to the age, you could even do it. Well, what did that look like for you?
1: Yeah, I like, kept researching. More books were coming out. Um, books typically about uh, Vietnam experience. Guys would, would retire and um, would write books. Some of them would write novels or some write uh, autobiographies about their their time uh, in service, usually focusing on their time in Vietnam. So I just read, read every one of those. Um, and uh, so I just kept studying, kept learning. And in the back of one of these books, and I still have it, but I forget which one it was. I think it was called something creative like U.S. Navy SEALs. Um, the, Back cover talked about this program called the Dive Farer program, and uh, it uh, it was it was kind of a sham. <laughs> I discovered after I came in, uh, but uh, what it let you do is you take a couple of tests or whatever, uh, and it all it does really was to let you guarantee you a uh, a tryout for buds in boot camp. So you sign on for six years everybody else was signing on for like three or four or something, but you signed on for six and they gave you the opportunity to try out in boot camp. And I was like, that's all I need, just the opportunity. So I signed up and I got to boot camp, and I found out that everyone has an opportunity to, uh, to try, even the people that signed on for three or four years. So it's a, uh, you know, it's typical military, typical government, typical recruiter type thing. But anyway, I came into the dive Fair program, which a lot of people did uh, during my during my time. And I, I think somehow it, it pushed you towards a uh, a source rating, which you used to have to have back then for, and for the other people, for other services listening, it's like an MOS, um, military occupational specialty. Uh, and you had to have a certain source rating that allowed you to go to BUDS. So you couldn't go if you were, you know, I forget what it was, it's just uh, like, like a journalist, although I think you could go as a journalist, but you could go if you were a, a bosun's mate or something like that. So they would push you into a uh, a category of people that could go to buds uh so that's the way i came in and most of the guys that i uh that were my peers during that time came in the same way
0: so you spent over a decade researching the seals when you finally got there day one of buds was it what you thought it would be
1: well, I, I spent way more than a decade researching <laughs> yeah Yeah. way more than a decade but um yeah, no, I was, uh, I was ready. Yeah. Ready. I was about as ready as you could be. Uh, in that I, I knew I wanted to do this. Uh, I told my friends and family that that's what I was going to do. So I couldn't very well show my face at home again, had, uh, had I quit. Um, but everything I did really was about preparing myself. So, when like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu first showed up here, I was early in on that in the early '90s when no one knew what it was. Uh, now everybody knows what it is, of course, um, and uh, things like that. I knew that boxing would help, so I did so I was doing that, um, just trail running, running in general, like cross country, endurance type stuff. Um, of course, we didn't know what we know now about nutrition and about uh, about working out. There's no CrossFit or anything like that. Although I, I did do CrossFit esque type stuff, just pull-ups and sprints and more pull-ups, not knowing, you know, just thinking that looked like some of the videos that I'd seen of, of buds. Um, so that sort of thing. So I was about as prepared, I think, as you could be going in because some guys took one foot on that grinder and before, <laughs> before they'd even been issued a buds uniform they quit <laughs> like they just took one look at what's going on i was like uh, it's not for me and i i don't know how that happens because it shouldn't be a surprise because you have to volunteer for this thing so you should have some idea of what you're getting into um but apparently some people had a change of heart between signing the papers and showing up in uh, coronado california to actually do it um, but, uh, yeah, we, we, I was about as prepared as you could be, I think.
0: Yeah. That preparation, I think is so key. And I always get questions when we talk to people such as yourself who elite military and how do you, how do you cultivate that mindset that you are able to overcome this? Does, does it deal with the preparation or are there things outside of that, that you've been able to do?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I saw, and I heard this before I got there, I heard that, uh, the first couple hours of hell week, which for me was week four, I think now it's week three, but, uh, you'd have the strongest, toughest, fastest guys in your class quit right away. And, uh, you know, when I saw these guys in my class, I was like, wow, man, how am I going to make it through this thing? Look how big that guy is. And look how, look how fast he's climbing that rope. And oh my gosh, this guy's an animal. Um, and then sure enough, first couple hours of hell week, that guy's gone. Um, and that, that's fairly typical. For, uh, for this kind of a, a training program, for whatever reason, because it's really all about mental fortitude. It's about that. It's about that drive. It's about that determination. It's it's testing for grit. And so, how do you test for grit? You know, it doesn't matter what size you are, um, or, you know, how strong you are, how fast you are. Um, and you know, maybe you either have it or you don't. I don't know. But uh, buds and Hell Week in particular, uh, where we get most of most of the attrition, most of that eighty percent attrition comes uh, comes during Hell Week, um, is is looking for that uh, looking for that grit. But at the same time, I yeah yes I didn't quit because I, <laughs> because I couldn't show my face at home again. But two, more importantly, I think I put things in perspective. And as I was you know running up and down the beach or sitting there shivering in the waves, you know, and verge of hypothermia for the whole week and all that stuff, I would think about you know how much harder guys had it back uh, in World War II, uh, storming the beaches at Normandy, uh, Iwo Jima. Uh, Really, since the inception of this country, what people sacrificed so I could be there on that beach in California uh, running, you know, (laughs) doing log PT, doing boat PT, uh, getting yelled at. And I thought, you know what, this is nothing compared to what those guys went through uh, to give me the freedom to do this. So I put it in relative terms and that kind of, um, yeah, put it all in perspective and, and let me look at it for what it actually is, which is, uh, don't quit and <laughs> run fast.
0: <laughs> Good advice to live by right there. I am interested though. I'm looking for a little laugh here. What was the most physically demanding thing you did during your time with the seals?
1: Oh, time in the seals, I thought you were going to say buds. Um, let's go for buds Cause that's what I was thinking. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, but uh, the swims were tough for me because I got there and now we prepare people. We teach them how to do this underwater recovery stroke. Um, when I got there, they didn't really teach you. They just threw you in. And the Underwater recovery stroke is this uh, stroke where it's kind of like side stroke, upper body um, and freestyle, but kind of on your side with fins. So you're under the water for most of it. And you just kind of put your head up, grab a breath, go back down. Um, so it's kind of a legacy type strokes. So you're not splashing. If you're swimming in on an enemy beach or up to a ship or something like that. Um, and I didn't know how to do it. <laughs> so I was very slow. Uh, so my first, I think my first swim where they try to pair you up with someone about your speed, uh, as, as a swim buddy, I think I was like, third to last, I think it was. And, uh, so I was struggling through that first phase, barely making the times. And then a guy that was, uh, a water polo player growing up took me aside and, uh, taught me how to do it. Just gave me, took me out the ocean. We did like an hour out there, uh, got me the technique down and then I went from third, to third to last to third uh, in my next swim. And then I was, you know, never had a problem after that. So, uh, so that was tough in that respect. Cause at the beginning, I didn't know if I'd be able to figure this, uh, technique out, uh, with no instruction. Um, and then another weird one is I hated taking my boots on and off for whatever reason. You have to like take your boots on and off all the time. And I don't know why that stands out to me, but because uh, I'm kind of a flip-flop person, I guess, or, a, you know, slide into the Solomon shoes type person, but uh, putting those boots on and then blousing your boots and tying them and then jumping in the water and then get them go and roll around in the sand and then get hosed off and then put your boots on and off. Like that was a pain <laughs> for whatever reason that stands out. So those two things are the, the two things that stand out. I want to talk about that
0: swim stroke, and you mentioned just your ability to skill development, going third to last, who I think you mentioned third. Is there anything that you do in terms of developing new skills when you approach a new thing that could be beneficial?
1: You know, I'm just always learning. I'm just a, a lifelong learner, and just like we're on the SEAL teams, we're a learning organization, and you have to be because the enemy is, and that enemy is adapting to you, and you have to adapt to that enemy, and you have to do it faster, than the enemy uh, or they're going to have the edge. So I think approaching everything with that mindset, uh, just looking how you can be most effective, most efficient, um, and how you can not just avoid getting stuck in, in legacy. And that's kind of what uh, I did going into this, into writing uh, in this, this the business side of it is that I had no idea that, <laughs> the business side existed, but I think it's been beneficial and I didn't have any baggage. So I didn't have anything, uh, like my lens was clear as I looked at it. I, and I looked at it as a problem set, as an opportunity, and I uh, just kind of figured out how to best capitalize on whatever momentum I had. And uh, I think that helps because without that baggage, without the, oh, this is how I did it at my last job or you know, this is how my last marketing department did it. And this is great. This is what you always do when you're doing an advertisement or you're doing, you're connecting with your whoever. Um, I didn't have any of that. So <laughs> I could just be me and I could just look at it like I would a problem on the battlefield. Although with a lot <laughs> the consequences being a lot less dire um, and, uh, and, I, and I love learning. So, so it's uh, pretty much everything in life I just approach with that, uh, that same mentality. Um, and, uh, going to take it on board and learn something and and move forward.
0: Yeah. I I always try to take away some things from, people like yourself who are in the SEALs, because you guys can just operate in such complex scenarios. So when you're able to translate that to real world stuff in terms of not dealing with life or death scenarios, it's very helpful for someone like myself. So you mentioned your love of writing early on. So how did you first begin writing? Were you doing this throughout your entire childhood and even when you were in the SEALs or was this not until after?
1: So not in the SEALs and, you know, growing up, I always looked forward to the writing assignments in school, uh, writing the short stories or reading the short stories and, you know, writing a report about them or something like that. Anything that gave me the opportunity to read and learn uh, wasn't I wasn't big on the math part of school, Uh, but uh, but reading I loved and just having a mom that was a librarian, always bringing books home for us, have books all over our house. um, And it was just it was just a part of our childhood. Um, So I was a fan first and I'm a reader first. And uh, I think that helps because although I didn't recognize it as such at the time, those guys I mentioned earlier, they gave me my early education in storytelling, so they laid a foundation that uh, is very beneficial today. And I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and then as I moved forward in early '90s, I discovered Stephen Hunter, who of course uh, created the character Bob Lee Swagger in the book Point of Impact. Amazing guy. He ended up blurbing my first book. I mean, just amazing. Um, I got to hang out recently, have dinner and drinks, and he's just just a fantastic human being. Um, and then as I continued to go forward, I continued reading uh, I discovered Daniel Silva, I discovered Vince Flynn, discovered Brad Thor, um, all these guys that are just uh, kind of masters of the craft and at the pinnacle um, of their of, of their their time in in publishing um, and I continue to read. But then in the military, uh, I started reading a lot more nonfiction and studying terrorism, studying insurgencies, studying where we're going in the world, who'd been there before us, what were their lessons learned, what are the politics of the region, what's our, who are the players out there, the religion, uh, culture, economy, anything that could give me— uh, make assist me in making better decisions under fire, better decisions for the guys downrange. Um, was, that, that was really the focus when I was in the SEAL teams, because it has to be. Uh, that pendulum has to swing away from your family and towards the team and be right there the entire time you're responsible for taking guys downrange, because that's what you owe them. That's what you owe their families. Uh, that's what you owe the mission, the country. Um, so I got that, that academic study. And then the experiences that I had in Iraq and Afghanistan, like all those things, the emotions behind those, all, all of that, that that foundation of being, a, of being a reader, reading these guys that are masters of the craft, studying terrorism and insurgencies, and then bringing the feelings and emotions behind certain experiences downrange to the, the pages of a fictional thriller. Um, that's all, it all kind of came together, but it wasn't planned that way. It was just kind of, first I want to be in the military as a SEAL, then I want to write one day. Um, so looking back, I can look at it and I can kind of, piece it together like that, but it it wasn't intentionally, that wasn't intentionally my path. It just just kind of happened.
0: Let's play hypothetical here. If you didn't go into the SEALs and you weren't a writer, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh,
1: Probably a uh, (laughs) river
0: guide. You're very clear, concise, You have complex understandings of a lot of different things, and you're able to condense them really clearly. And I feel like that's a really unique skill. So I was just wondering what you thought you might be doing. Uh, I think you could. Yeah, totally
1: different. I mean, I love. uh, I mean, I'm always going to write, and and, uh, so it's a strange question because I never wanted to do anything else. But I guess if those (laughs) those things didn't exist, you know, I'd be on a on a river uh, exploring, be outside, um, still be testing myself be pushing myself um that that's what i mean i love the outdoors grew up with a love of it um my family you know, we try to disappear down a river canyon every year because it's uh it's good to put away <laughs> put away the ipads and the iphones and i i fall prey to it just like <laughs> anyone else um you know telling the kids oh just hold on i have to return it just real quick i have this one text i have to return well at the bottom of a river canyon, there's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell service, there you, there's no option to even check your phone. So it's a great place to go to uh, to escape from the digital leash um, that uh, that gets so many of us here in this modern day and age. So uh so yeah, I love love getting outdoors, love getting outside with the with the family.
0: Yeah, it certainly doesn't hurt to disconnect for a few days. So we had on someone you mentioned, Brad Thor, and we talked about day one writing when his wife challenged him about what he would regret. Never having done it on his deathbed. So when you sit down for the first
1: time to write, do you remember that at all? I do, and I, you know, I didn't start with just one idea. I started with multiple ideas, and I wrote them down on like six or seven different ideas. wrote one page summaries, executive summaries. Uh, some had titles, some some didn't, and printed them out and put them on a table, and then I thought about it and read them all multiple times and thought, Hey, which one of these is going to resonate the most with readers? Which one of these is going to resonate most with a New York publisher? Uh, And I chose the one that had the theme of revenge. And I did that quite deliberately because I loved reading books that had that theme growing up. Uh, I loved going to movies that had that theme growing up. And I think it just resonates with people because you do things or you experience things on the written page or in the movie theater that you could never do in real life. Because if you did, you'd go to jail. Uh, but uh, but in a movie or in a book, um, the the protagonist can get away with it, um, and you're rooting for them because you know you can't do it in real life. As much as you might want to, uh, you know you can't. So uh, so that's the one I I, uh, I chose to dive into first, and the uh, the title came right away, um, uh, an outline came soon thereafter, and then it was time to time to sit down and do it. So uh, so that was the, the first one. And I was heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers in 1988. So I'm still pretty young, very impressionable at this time, but I know I both want to be a SEAL and write. So I watched this uh, series of interviews on PBS with my mom. It was called The Power of Myth, and a, uh, a book with the same title, Uh, came out after that. But Joseph Campbell's seminal work is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he studied mythologies across culture and found that these different cultures, these different societies that had never had any contact before had a similar mythology. They had a similar hero's journey. And this journey typically looked like a reluctant hero at first who goes on a journey. He is uh, tested goes through some sort of a crucible. Usually he meets a mentor along the way that gives him knowledge that helps him overcome obstacles. And he emerges transformed at the end of that and usually makes his way back home to pass those lessons on to his society or his, his family. Um, so I was very cognizant of that as I started out. If you think back to some of the, the stories that you like, some of our mythologies, some uh, movies that you like, you'll find that they they have that similar theme and Joseph Campbell was also heavily influential on George Lucas for the Star Wars films. Um, and it was just something that was a part of me from so early on that uh, it's not something I discovered later. Uh, it's something that I've, I've thought about for a long time and I've been a huge uh, fan of Joseph Campbell's work since those early days. So I think having those influences early on and having that love of reading from a very early age, I mean, I can't stress enough how much that, uh, that makes me who I am today.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the love for reading and it's if you want to learn to love reading, love what you read and you you epitomize that. So it was very cool to hear about Joseph Campbell, your first book, The Terminal List. So this was the outline that you mapped out on the table.
1: It was an executive summary and a title. Um, And then I picked it and then started the outline. And some guys like um, uh, uh, Kyle Mills, who does the um, Vince Flynn novels now, writes the Mitch Rapp series um, since uh, Vince Flynn passed away, unfortunately, Um, he has his outlines are huge. Um, and talking to him, I mean, there he says it's pretty much done. All the problems are solved, and then all he goes back and turns those uh, the outline into into full sentences. Uh, essentially, is what he what he told me. So um, I get the outline out there, but I don't get bogged down. I don't get bogged down in the problem solving uh, of of an issue as I'm working my way through that outline. Uh, I know the beginning, I know the middle, I know the end, so I know where I'm going. Uh, and there are some things that I can't figure out in the outline. I just go, I continue, and and keep pushing forward. knowing that I have time and those answers will come to me as I'm writing. Um, Even if they're not coming to me right now and I'm staring at this outline, as I write over these series of months, um, I will have time to solve that problem. Uh, And I look at it like, solving, aggressively solving problems on the battlefield. Now I'm doing that same thing, uh, on the pages of novels in a fictional sense. Um, where once again, if I mess up, uh, you know, I have time to go back and edit the next day. <laughs> so, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it ended up being <laughs> quite a therapeutic process and I just, I love every second of
0: it. No, that's very cool to hear about the patient's perspective you have right now. And, uh, we had Kyle Mills on and he talked about those 60,000 word outlines. Oh, did he? Yeah. Okay, so good, I'm good. just blown away by that, but yeah, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, so the terminal list, this huge success, and now your newest book, which has only been out for a week, True Believer. What is it like going from book one to book two, especially when book one
1: had that amount of success? Right, so it wasn't like book one had success and then it was time to start book two. Uh, it didn't go down like that. I, I always knew I was gonna write two novels. Um, and I started that first one, or sorry, that second one before I'd even submitted the first one to Simon & Schuster. So summer of 2016, I start True Believer because there are too many stories of people whose first books don't hit that uh, go and then write a second one, and those are the ones that take off. So I always knew I was gonna write two. And uh, the example that most people will know is John Grisham. And his first work was called The Time to Kill. And I arguably, I think it's his best work. But he couldn't give that thing away. And he threw out, I think, boxes of first editions behind his law office because he was upset. And then he went, he didn't quit, though. Went on, and he wrote The Firm. And then The Firm takes off, huge bestseller, uh, gets optioned for a movie, Tom Cruise stars. And we've had a John Grisham novel every year since. And had he not done that, had he stopped at the first one and thought, ah, oh, this thing's not selling. I guess I'm just going to go back and practice law. Well, that's what he'd still be doing today. Uh, we wouldn't have the client. We wouldn't have runaway jury. We wouldn't have the Pelican Brief. We wouldn't have the movies that came from those. Uh, it wouldn't have started those actors' careers that uh, that were, were involved in those, uh, in those movies. Um, so he didn't quit. And that's something that resonated with me. And it's something Brad Thor told me the first time we spoke. And he said, uh, the only difference between a published author and an unpublished author is that the published author never quit. And because of BUDS and how easy we make it to self-select out of that program with by ringing the bell and putting your helmet down, that really resonated with me. Um, I said, oh, that's good. All you have to do is not quit. Um, <laughs> of course, there's a little more to it than that. But uh, I went to Mozambique, started doing the research for uh, for True Believer. Um, talk to the professional hunters out there, the trackers, talk to the people about what's going on out there with the Chinese influence as far as both legal and illegal mining operations and the people that are working there and how they're feeding them and how's that affecting the environment. Um, So all those things I got to weave in the pages of true believer and uh, even the local beer (laughs) made it in which is one of the benefits of doing uh (laughs) doing local research so that that made it into the the pages there and then uh for this third one i'm finishing up right now and i'll be in edits on the third one until probably october november um i'm going to siberia here in a couple weeks um, and there's a few things I'm very interested in over there, but I know that a lot of what I learned, I don't even know, I don't even know the questions to ask at this point. I have to get, put boots on the ground first and then take that experience. And then it'll be, a, I'll be able to weave those experiences in, uh, and I'll be able to talk to people about the weather and the changing of the seasons and, uh, what kind of snow machines, like what kind of snowmobiles do they use out there? Is it some crazy Russian thing I've never heard of? And what does that sound like? And does it run on some crazy mixture of vodka and oil or what, what's going on? So I'm looking forward to doing, uh, doing all that boots on the ground type research and uh, and weave that into the edits um, of the third novel. Um, so I I got to go to South Africa also for uh, research for book three and for a little bit of book two because I was finishing up edits and uh, got to speak to, to some amazing people and also got to kind of help out uh, train up an anti-poaching unit out there protecting some of the last rhino on earth. So got to teach them how to use um, new weapon systems. They weren't uh, particularly familiar with, M4 and the Glock, which are uh, platforms that I happen to have a little bit of experience with. And I uh, got to talk to them about tracking because book three is uh, is heavy in tracking. And tracking has always fascinated me, not just the science of it, but the, the psychology behind it. And some of these guys I was working with, they'd caught the, well, they grew up tracking animals to survive. And then they caught the tail end of the bush wars. So they caught the mid nineties uh, tail end of the bush wars. In this case, it was Namibia. And then they got back and a lot of them got pulled into what we would think of as crime scene investigative units so for the national police force so they took that tracking of animals that tracking of humans and that man tracking man hunting and brought that into an urban environment and brought really the psychology of tracking to an urban environment so where would the suspect go not just tracking you know, drips of blood or whatever. Um, but, uh, where would the, where would he, where would this person go? Where'd that suspect go? Who, what's his pattern of life? Where can we intercept him? Um, that sort of thing. And then they kind of aged out of that. And now a lot of them have been hired by these, uh, private reserves that are protecting some of these last rhino on earth. So I got to really spend some, some good time with them. And you know, we have, a. Uh, uh, spend some time under the stars, uh, cooking over a fire and just uh, go through a little tracking course they put together for me and, um, really get into their backgrounds. And then weave some of those into the storyline. So, um, love doing the research and, uh Point being that uh, I was always gonna write two. And if two, if both books didn't take off, then I was gonna take a breath and reevaluate my choices in life. <laughs> but I was always gonna write two.
0: Nothing like being able to write off a few of those local beers in some foreign countries though. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, research. <laughs> yep, you mentioned tracking. Uh, over a year ago, we had on Boyd Vardy from the Londolozi Game Reserve and we talked a lot about tracking. So I really became into that. So I cannot wait now for your third book. I'm going to go listen to that. Yeah. That sounds great. But, but what I absolutely love about your writing, it's just so real, so authentic. You can feel that oozing off the pages because you've lived this, you've experienced this. And I know in your writing, you talk about your time in Iraq in 06. What is that like having the, those real stories to bring up onto paper?
1: Yeah. Well, I didn't anticipate going so deep into the feelings and emotions behind different experiences downrange. I mean, when I started and I sat down for that first time, I knew that I'd get the, I'd get the gun stuff right, I'd get the gear stuff right, I'd get the tactics stuff right, so it would be authentic in that sense. Uh, but it became evident almost immediately that uh, the the power really behind what I was doing was going to come from the emotions and the feelings behind these events, and then taking those and applying them to a fictional narrative. And it ended up being a very therapeutic process. I, not that I had terrible experiences downrange, not not at all. I was very fortunate, um, but to take those experiences and then use them in a positive way going forward, um, really, I mean, it brings a smile to my face right now to, to be able to, uh, to, to dive back into those and then use them in this next chapter in life in a, in a positive way. So, um, so that part was, a, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a surprise as I, as I started out on this journey. And the second one, really the whole storyline was uh, inspired by something that happened to me in Iraq in 2006 and back then it was uh, right around the time of the golden mosque bombing if you remember that that's when the, uh, the sunni shia rift really came back to the forefront and threatened to rip the country apart even further than it already was in 2006 but i was working for what can best be described as a uh, covert action unit and we were working with iraqis and one of these iraqi officers was uh, head and shoulders really above his peers as far as tactical battlefield leadership really stood out so i got to know him a little bit and uh, an amazing guy and Years later, I got word through the grapevine that he disappeared. And I thought, you know what? What if I was to make this a lot more interesting, have him resurface in Europe, and disgruntled with the fact that the U.S. left at the end of 2011— but he'd been trained up by the CIA and by U.S. Special Operations Forces, and now he's taking those skills and using them against the Western world. And I thought, what if one of the guys that, uh, that had trained him and spent time with him is James Reese, the protagonist of the terminal list, and the U.S. government needs to find somebody that knows this guy who can track him down in Europe and bring him to justice. And that's really what's, uh, what laid the groundwork and the foundation for True Believer.
0: Jack, you know what the problem is with interviewing authors is you guys just distract me because <laughs> you get me just captivated in story. <laughs> so I, I keep losing what I'm thinking about saying. So I love Don't hearing worries. about that. You have me so intrigued by this. But you mentioned about just kind of that idea generation. And I, I'm interested where you pull your ideas from typically. Do you have the next decade worth of book ideas in your head or is it other times that you're experiencing
1: these ideas? right? So it's a kind of combination. So I still have those six or seven ideas that I wrote down at first uh, as ideas for the first novel. And those are now morphing into books three, four, five, six, seven. Um, so I had all those ideas, but at the same time, I have other ideas that I've, as as I'm writing or as I'm just talking to people or reading or whatever um, that, that come up also. So I write those down and I would like to tell you that I've been, once again, uh, very organized about this. But there are yellow stickies everywhere. There are text messages to myself. There are emails to myself. There's notebooks all over the place. It's it's ridiculous. Um, So I just got a computer that is for this third novel that uh, was just dedicated to writing um, and has a program called Scrivener on it. And so each one of these ideas is now turning into its own Scrivener folder. Uh, You can drag research in. You can have Different ideas in videos, pictures, whatever you whatever you need, uh, and it's an amazing program. Because uh, up until this point, I've been in Word, which means a lot of copying, a lot of pasting, a lot of scrolling. Uh, not the most efficient way to go about things. And with Scrivener, it's amazing. You can just hit this one button, and it throws your chapters up on the screen like a corkboard. And so you can drag and drop chapters instead of scroll, 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 trying to get to figure out how like where is this? How long was it? Tell we've seen this bad guy before. Oh, okay. Uh, you know what? It really needs to move a couple of chapters up. Okay copy, paste, scroll, 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 scroll. Uh, okay, now back down again, and then now delete because you're worried if you cut that you're going to lose it. So it's uh, using Scrivener has been, uh, oh, it's amazing. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Uh, and all my ideas that are on these little notepads and yellow stickies and text messages and emails are now finding their way into folders on this computer that is just for writing.
0: I'll have to check that out. I'm doing a little bit of writing myself. So it, it's, I'm in Word right now. So it seems like I'm definitely going to need to <laughs> jump over to Scrivener.
1: Oh yeah, and you can you can drag you can uh, export and import from Word, uh, so they make that fairly easy, which is great. Awesome.
0: So you mentioned about the ideas you have. You're writing post-it notes everywhere. Are those only ideas about books along the theme of thriller, or do you have ideas across all aspects of
1: life? Uh, you know, there's a few ideas out there, but for the for the most part, it's focused on the on the thriller, on this series, on these characters, um, and on this journey. And I mentioned the the hero's journey before uh, from Joseph Campbell's research, and I was also very cognizant that how do you how do you have a a single novel that fits that paradigm, and then how do you have a series of books in the in the uh, with those same characters that uh, that also follows along that paradigm over, let's say 20 books. How does that work? So that's in my mind, as I write. And I like to drop little things in there that give me options going forward, even though I might not know where they're going to go. I'll drop in a little thing about Iran Contra, or I'll drop in a little thing about uh, the protagonist's dad or his grandfather, um, or little things here and there that uh, that I don't really know how they'll get used in the future. But uh, but they're there, um, and they're just kind of kind of fermenting uh, until until I want to go back and explore them a little deeper in a future novel.
0: Oh uh, Jack, this is what I love about these conversations because you're really pulling back the curtain, giving us perspective into what you're doing behind the scenes stuff. What about your actual writing process? What does it look like? You mentioned you have that one computer right now dedicated when you sit down to write. Is it same place, same time most of the days or or do do you go to off sites? What does it look like?
1: oh my gosh well like I said i would i want to get more disciplined about this going forward but uh, right now it's mass chaos so i'll lock down for like two weeks and what i found at a time and then i'll have to go on a trip or then i'll have you know interviews or whatever else and it's just you know get pulled in a, a bunch of different directions which is great but it also makes having a disciplined schedule um, quite difficult and it makes it very difficult to um, capitalize on emerging opportunities if you're locked in. To a schedule like that so it's it's a it's an interesting balance um and that uh i'm working towards having that discipline and that schedule and being able to say no but i'm not there yet i'm not there yet um and uh, i found that the beautiful office that i have in our new house that has an amazing view of the mountains i'm surrounded by books and it's just nice and peaceful well not so much when the kid, three kids are there dogs barking wife is there yes person knocking on the door uh, all those things so it's just chaos at all times and when you t- <laughs> when i close the doors of the office and i say okay guys uh, when the doors are closed that means i'm working i'm writing it's like a magnet it's like it's like child magnet you close those things dogs there kids there wife there it's just not does not work in our house so uh, i need to go someplace uh where i can sit down and i actually like not having anything else around me i just like having a blank wall um and just uh that that seems to be what works best for me and i i thought it would be having this nice view and all that stuff be surrounded by my all my things and memories and all that but what i found is that staring at a blank wall just having some peace and quiet a little coffee um some pretzels um that uh that's it, that's uh, that's where I get the most done and that's where I'm uh, the most effective and efficient with my time. So you're gonna stop doing some of those trips to Hawaii to write? <laughs> that's the one of those, you know, you throws off the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely throws off the schedule. You know, the, the airline don't understand that I have to stick to this writing process. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I <laughs> got to do those too. Cause that also makes me, makes me who I am. And I get great ideas by talking to people and meeting people and um, exploring different ideas with them. Not necessarily about writing, but just about life in general. And then some things will just pop up and spark an idea and I'll jot it down um, just going through life in general. So um, yeah, I love to travel love to explore and love to do things with the family. So uh, that's really what this next chapter in life is about, is about taking care of them because they put up with a lot for the first 20 years uh, when you had to be focused on on the mission and the team. But uh, but now it's really about the family moving forward. Yeah, I'm
0: thinking about your exploration of life and you mentioned during your research process, you'll you'll come to a new country and you're not even sure what questions to ask, what you're looking for. So in a scenario like that, what do you do even just to spark new conversation or ideas? Yeah, well, you know, I
1: only have a couple places, I'm only on book three. Um, The first, well, the second one, so the research in Mozambique, I wrote down a bunch of different uh, just phrases that I wanted to get in the multiple languages that are spoken there. Um, So they have Portuguese, they have all these crazy, uh, you know, native languages, so many of them, even though it's a small area. Um, And I I think I I still have the notes. So I have about maybe 10, 12 uh, pieces of paper, all with the, the same phrases written on them, but with the responses or with the translation into these local languages, uh, all different, obviously. Um, so I have those and I use them uh, uh, for the first one, but that just doing that and bringing those out and talking to people, that really, um, kind of opened lines of communication. So it wasn't just I like sat down and started asking questions. It was, hey, can, can you help me figure this out? Like, how would you, what are the local languages here? And, and how would you say this and this and this? And then you just, that's building a relationship with someone. And uh, through the course of going through that and building the relationship and then maybe having a drink, uh, the conversation goes who knows where. Um, but I did know that I wanted to get, I wanted to learn about uh, what the what, what was the dirt like there? What, what color was it? Uh, what are the rocks like? What were the plants like? Um, and then of course the Chinese influence and everything else that's going on in that area of the world. So I had a, I had a, an idea, kind of like the same, the same way I have an idea for for Siberia, uh, but I don't know where those conversations are going to go. So really, they're more conversation starters than anything else.
0: I feel like we could dive deeper for a whole nother hour just on that thread alone. But I, <laughs> I, I want to get back into the writing. So do you ever get stuck writing?
1: No. And I feel terrible saying that because it could now it's going to happen. Run. There we go. Knocking on. This is actual wood. I knocked on. So. Uh, I heard Stephen Pressfield talk about this, and he wrote *Gates of Fire*, *Legend of Bagger Vance*, a bunch of other books. But he has a series on creativity, and one of them is called *The War of Art*. One of them's is called *Turning Pro*, uh, *The Authentic Swing*. Um, that, so he has a, a bunch of these books that are all they're they're similar in that it talks about sitting down, being a professional, and doing the work, no matter if you're writing, sculpting, painting, um, whatever you're doing in the creative space just sitting down and being a professional. And I don't remember if it's, if it's from one of those books or if it's from, I think he was on Joe Rogan, um, but somewhere uh, he said, hey, you never hear of a trucker having trucker's block or a doctor having doctor's block. You're a writer, you're a professional, you sit down and write. And I was like, oh, that's, that's good advice. I like that. I'm not gonna have writer's block. So, uh, so I kind of just took that on board. And uh, so far it's worked. Uh, another thing I took away from him was uh, staying on theme. And I think this really helped when the first novel got to Simon Schuster. So it got to Emily Bessler's desk, Emily Bessler Books, Atria Simon & Schuster. She's amazing. Brad Thor's editor, Vince Flynn's editor. Um, she's just incredible. And I, I thought once it ended up in New York that they, they'd do all sorts of edits and it would come back and it'd be totally different. And, you know, and that's fine because they're the professionals and you know, we'll go with that. Um, but it came back with like three questions. So would he say this here? Would he do this here? And would uh, and the third one I can't remember right now. So very very few content edits, um, and I think that's due to the fact that I listened to, to Stephen Pressfield and I took a yellow sticky and he said he would take a yellow sticky and put it in his case. I think it was a typewriter, but in my case, it's my MacBook Air and uh, write the theme on this yellow sticky and put it right here to the left of my little mouse pad thing, and uh, it, I wrote revenge on that. And so if a sentence, a paragraph, a chapter didn't directly or indirectly lead back to that theme, then I discarded it and did what, uh, what Stephen King calls killing your babies. He said, don't be afraid to kill your babies. It still sounds disgusting, but that's what he says in his book on writing. Um, and, uh, so I essentially edited as I went, um, and made sure that I stayed somehow on that theme. And now it didn't have to be directly, I make sure, uh, indirectly is very important as well, but uh, somehow staying on that theme. So I think that that really helps. So I'm very, um, always be indebted to uh, Stephen Pressfield for letting the world know what uh, how he dealt with writer's block and then how he stayed on theme in his novels. I'm so
0: excited to put together the, the notes for this show, just the amount of actionable
1: takeaways
0: and and great ideas around writing that are coming from this. This is just absolutely fantastic. Do you ever get realistic feedback real time? I know you mentioned sending it off to the publisher. What about during the process? Is, is there any way you monitor that?
1: Not really. Well, let me jump back um, real quick to, uh, to our last question um, because it can be dangerous to almost study how to do something too much. Um, So when I mentioned these novels, I mean, those are are really the only ones that I I read. I read all Stephen Pressfield's books on creativity. Uh, I read Stephen King's on writing, and I read David Morrell's, The Successful Novelist. David Morrell created Rambo back in 1972 and had an amazing series uh, in the 80s, uh, started with Brotherhood of the Rose, then went Fraternity of the Stone, League of Night and Fog, um, and was very influential on me. In fact, he mentioned seals the first time I read them in popular fiction in Brotherhood of the Rose. It was just one sentence, but it was a very important one to me. So uh, it was kind of like validation for what I wanted to do later in life. Uh, you know, learning about seals in the pages of this, uh, this thriller where they're only mentioned once. Um, and I've gotten to know David Morrell since and he's a, an amazing guy and I let him know how he influenced me both uh, uh, to, to become an author and a seal, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a pretty important guy to me. But point being, it's gonna be different for everyone, but you can almost study how to do it too much eventually you have to sit down and actually do it. And it's not just writing. It can be anything. Um, and now there's so much information out there uh, and it's all readily available right from your couch or your desk or wherever um, via the internet, of course, uh, that you can get bogged down in how to do something. But eventually, you know, you're know, you going to have to decide when that is. Each and every person is going to be different. Um, but for me, that's all I needed was the Stephen Pressfield books and the, the Stephen King and the David Morrell one that I thought that gave me a okay solid foundation i get it i need to sit down and write understood and then i did it so um just wanted to take it back to that for a second so people realize that you can get uh, get too bogged down in the how uh, that will delay you're actually doing it the reason we all remember the nike just do it <laughs> all these years later i mean how many years has it been since they come up with that came up with that very simple slogan uh, we remember it for a reason
0: I thank you for bringing that back up. That's a constant reminder I need, and I think all of the listeners can just rewind that and listen to that again. So the first book was The Terminal List, the new one, True Believer. It is on shelves now. What should the listeners know about this? I know you're gonna grip us with just another captivating story, but what are some of the key things readers can expect out of this?
1: Right, so it's a continuation of the, of the journey. And that first one I talked about being a uh, novel of revenge and really revenge without constraint. And the second one I like to refer to as a novel of violent redemption. And we're all on a journey. Uh, We're all gonna face adversity in life. If you haven't, you will. Um, And really what makes us who we are is how we deal with that adversity going forward. And same thing with the protagonist, James Reese. He's on a journey, he's uh, learning to live again. He's looking for that next mission in life, that next purpose, just like we all are. Uh, and we all do after we go through major transitions. Um, and so we get to go along with him on that journey and see how he deals with that adversity and, uh, and how that makes him who he will be going forward.
0: Violent Redemption. I absolutely love that, Jack Carr. This has been a true pleasure for me. I know everyone who's listening to this got a ton out of that. So I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Good luck with the rest of the book tour.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to doing it again sometime. Definitely.
0: You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand. They're MCT Co., and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Do you guys miss your favorite childhood cereals but had to give them up because of all the sugar? Meat? Catalina Crunch, the world's first keto friendly, zero sugar cereal in delicious dark chocolate, cinnamon toast, maple waffle, and honey gram. When the founder of Catalina Crunch was diagnosed at age 17 with type 1 diabetes, he set out to satisfy his chocolate craving and created his own. This low carb, zero sugar cereal will power you through the day with 10 grams of plant based protein, 6 grams of fiber to fill you up and is also gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free, and 100% plant-based. Don't forget about that turmeric as well to help fight inflammation and boost immunity. If you want to enjoy and receive 10% off your entire order, head to CatalinaCrunch.com. That's Catalina. C-A-T-A-L-I-N-A crunch.com and use code WGYT10 for 10% off. I just finished snacking on some of the dark chocolate and it was delicious. You guys need to head out and pick some up today. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoyed the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shondalini? Uh What got you there with Shondalini? What got you there with Shondalini? Uh, what got you there with Shondalini? Got you, got you?